Hey everyone, it's Brandon again. Welcome back to the Black Box of Product Management. Today I am joined by David Hariri, co-founder of Ada, a Toronto-based startup which just raised at $1.2 billion in May. David and his co-founder Mike have been at this company for seven years and are a great example of the resilience and persistence it takes to succeed in startups today. As you'll hear in the podcast, they had to make a really hard choice and a hard pivot midway through their company and almost considered shutting it down. David leads the development and design teams at Ada and is currently working on some of their innovation products as well. I hope you really enjoy this conversation as David takes me through his upbringing all the way through to what made Ada what it is today. Enjoy. David, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very grateful to be here. So I've been to your place. I've been in the room that you're in right now. In that room, there's a poster with, I think, a grid of 80 yeah. rows and 52 columns, so little boxes. And each is supposed to represent yeah. a week uh, in right. your life. And the whole poster represents a lifetime. Maybe describe like what you use that poster for and maybe what it represents or, or describes about how you think about life. Sure. Yeah. Wow. Um, it's cool that you started there. So that poster is really special to me. Uh, it's got every week of every year uh, of my life. So my my years at work start, you know, our fiscal year, whatever it is, end of January. But my personal years start on May 18th, my birthday. So I use that calendar every year for uh, of my life, every week to reflect on what went well and what didn't. So I sort of make little sticky notes underneath each box after I scribble it in. Uh, and those sticky notes, you know, might say something like, you know, we completed our Series C or my wife and I had a great weekend at a cottage or something. So it's stuff like that. And, and then what I do is on my birthday, I, I take some usually a day off and I pull them all off the poster and I journal and I check back on how I did against the goals that I set for myself at the beginning of that year. So it's, it's the, the only journal that I've been able to stick with. Let's put it that way. Every other journaling exercise I've ever done has failed yeah. miserably after the first two months. And through that process, like, I mean, how many years have you done that now? I've been doing this for, um, this was the fourth year. This is the fourth okay. year I've been doing this. And I got this poster, if people are interested, it, it on, um, I think it's Wait But Why, that blog. Yeah. If you know about that. Have you found anything like upon reflecting, like, when you review an entire year's worth of goals, like any takeaways just from like human psychology standpoint or yourself even that you've learned? For, for sure. So the first thing that comes to mind is that I suck at keeping with certain goals. Almost every year I say, I'm going to pick up a regular practice of meditating and every year I don't. And so that's something that sort of frustrates me, which might say something more about my psychology than human psychology. <laughs> I think in general... It feels like progress, and this sort of relates to your overall theme of like perseverance, I guess, in a way, but it feels like sort of progress is imperceptible day to day and even maybe week to week. But when you reflect back on a whole year, you're like, wow, like, you know, or hopefully you're saying, wow, you know, a lot happened. Like even during COVID, people keep telling me like, you know, the nothing year is like the COVID year, like the lost year, you know, and that's the year that I turned 30. But a lot happened for, for me, even though it all happened pretty much in this room, you know, a lot still <laughs> happened. And so I think if you can, totally. if you, if you journal things, then you can actually know what happened. 
Yeah. In fact, I think like maybe the environment that you're physically in, you know, stood still, but things probably changed more like they accelerated the pace of change across everything in your life. Yeah. Right? So yeah. more changed in this standstill year than ever before. So. Yep. That year, I would say the highs were higher last year, the highs were higher and the lows were lower. Yeah. So far this year has been maybe similar. I'm not sure. I haven't, hasn't been enough time to reflect on it. <laughs> you haven't done your exercise yet. Well, yeah, exactly. I'm like, I'm, I'm just, just turned 31. So I'm like on week three Amazing. right now. Amazing. You know, before I, you know, I, I love going back and, and hearing about your childhood, your upbringing, kind of what, what made you who you are at least, or at least like brought you onto the path you're on today. Before we do, just for those that don't know what Ada is uh, today, you want to just describe uh, your company and, and what it does and, and kind of the scale that it's at? Yeah, for sure. So Ada offers a, a service to medium to large size businesses. So um, some of our customers are like Zoom, for example, you know, TELUS Mobility for the Canadian viewers of this. And then we have a handful of other customers. Some of the Shopify apps, for example, the Shop app uses uses us, and we would we would say that's more of a mid market customer. If Shopify as an organization used us, then that would be a much much different story. <laughs> sure. um, and hopefully one day they will. And what they use our product to do is to really have interactions with their customers at scale. So every organization, as they grow, struggles to form the same relationships with their customers through service that they could when they were small. So if you go into a coffee shop, you know, the owner knows your name, they know your favorite order, they know exactly what you want. And that business, you know, has like 100 customers a day maximum, and they can do that. And so the question is, like, how does a business that has thousands or millions of interactions with customers a day offer that same level or better service? So the example we always use is, you know, you walk into the coffee shop, they, they know everything, like I said. Then you go to the bank, which you've been going to for like 15 years next door, and they don't know who the heck you are. They don't even know anything about you. Everybody has that experience where they you call support, for example, and they ask you for your phone number, they ask you for your name, and then they pass you off to an agent. And that agent doesn't know anything about you. And you go, well, why did I answer all those questions before that happened? So Ada is allowing our customers to have those types of interactions, those personalized deep interactions at scale through automation. And so we use machine learning, we have a workflow builder, we integrate with tons of different platforms and services to do that. The breadth of what Ada is doing in terms of allowing those companies to talk to customers is constantly growing. And so when we look in the next two years, we're definitely going to be seeing more commerce happening through Ada, as well as Ada talking to different people within the organization, not just customers. So employees, for example. Yeah. And just like a few weeks ago, you raised 130 million US at $1.2 billion valuation. So not too shabby at all. Uh, <laughs> yeah. One of the, <laughs> you yeah, know, one of the, the short list uh, companies of Canadian unicorns. How did, how did that feel? Well, I mean, first of all, I just feel incredibly lucky. And that's going to be probably the a trend throughout our conversation, I think, because that's how I often, often feel. It wasn't that long ago, and I can remember very well when I, I was so hungry to even just have someone say, I like what you built, <laughs> like, I'll, or use what I built. You know, it's even, that's even harder. Our, our whole team, I think, is just so incredible. And what we've been able to accomplish as we've grown has only increased. And, you know, these milestones are fantastic, but I think the larger opportunity is what most of us are, are more excited by. 
why don't you just take us through, you know, the the highlight reel of your childhood and, and early adulthood before you even started, you know, the company that became it. I would say, again, super lucky. You know, I have two amazing parents. I have two sisters and growing up, one of them significantly younger. So I, I grew up with, you know, one one sister who was close to my age. What did your parents do? My mom is an artist. She's a painter. And my dad is an architect. And he has an architecture firm called Hariri Pontarini Architects here in Toronto. It's a good combo. It is a great combo. It was a fantastic yeah. combo. And I, I do think that it it had a profound impact on how I see my work and what I do. Growing up around an, an artist and being surrounded by art and being taken to art galleries, either my mom's shows or other people's shows in her community, or you know, just museums for inspiration. Like I'm just surrounded by art. I, I honestly I'm I'm like one of the only people in my family when I was a kid who hated that, but but I know now that it's I just was so bored, but I know now that it had a profound impact on me and I'm glad I'm glad for it. And then my dad, I grew up around him and his him growing his business since I was very little. Like I think he started his practice in ninety-three. So then I would have been three years old. So I saw that his his own work evolve, his relationships with clients, his relationships with his team evolve, and the the whole practice and company, which is I think about 200 and something people. Did, did you have yeah. an interest uh, when you were younger in architecture itself, like in the buildings that were being designed and whatnot? Yeah, of course. I mean, in so much as every kid has an interest in what their parents do, like you think your parents are, I still think my parents are superheroes, but my dad always said like, don't go into architecture, which he, I probably shouldn't say that. I don't know if he'll <laughs> see this or not, but he did. He was very, he was um, joking, but semi-serious. I mean, architecture is hard. It's just really hard. It is a lot of hours, you know. It's that which is not really that different than doing anything, I think, with excellence. But I think the amount of school that you have to go through just to practice, the economics of the business itself are really grueling, and it's really a labor of love. And he maybe he made his own evaluation. Was like, this kid doesn't have it. <laughs> That's probably true. What did you get interested in, like in your young adolescence? Computers. <laughs> it's oh, like, yeah? Okay. Maybe How did that happen? But, yeah. <laughs> I was, uh, I was obsessed with computers and electronics since I was like five or six, like just oh, completely, wow. completely obsessed with it. And it's all started with my mom had a studio in the basement. That's where she painted. So because we were growing up with two working parents, my, I didn't see my dad a lot during the week and he would come home late at night and leave early in the morning. My mom was with us most days, but she was working as well. She was painting. So we had to kind of find our own activities to do. So I started taking apart electronics and I got really into this. I, I would buy these fishing tackle boxes and I would organize capacitors and resistors, LEDs, motors, gears would go from like one working unit to thousands of single components that um, were no longer working. But sometimes to my parents' chagrin, I guess, because you know I'd take apart their like CD player and they'd be like, okay, now we don't have a CD player anymore. So when I got older, it was like, you need to learn how to actually put these things back together. And that <laughs> taught me a lot more than just taking things apart. It taught me that taking things apart is easy. Putting them back together is hard. All of that gave me a foundation for um, software development later on, which nobody really put together until I was in my 20s. But that stuff, I think, gave me this sort of mind that's constantly curious about how things work and how they're put together. I love that saying that it's, uh, it's easy to take things apart and really hard to put them together. Right. Yeah. And it applies to software and everything too, where it's like, it's, it's, it's easy to judge the end result and say like, this code is shit. And like, why would they make so many stupid yeah. choices and whatever? 
right? But there are very good reasons along the journey of how it evolved that way. Absolutely true. We we have this conversation with our development team, I think probably twice a week minimum. Usually it's like someone get blames and they see something that I wrote, you know, five years ago and they go, oh my God. And then the people with experience on the team go like, well, you know, the context of that decision was totally different. I don't even have to say it usually now. I'm, I'm actually quick to like sort of own up to the fact that most of the code I wrote back then was garbage. So <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Okay. So uh, that love of computers, it, did it eventually morph into like what you went to school for? Nope, not at all. Okay. I wish it had. I, I Like looking back, sometimes I really wish it had because I actually think I would have loved studying computer science. I think now I would love doing it, but I don't think back then I would have been very successful at it. But basically what happened was I was definitely like, I definitely had challenges through school, like with just academically. I found it really hard to to control my attention. That's something that I've spent a lot of time throughout my life working on. You know, some classes I would have like you know, really excellent grades in because I was super interested in the topic, especially if there was a certain project or something. In some classes, like let's use English as an example or math, you know, like it just was bombing, like barely passing. And it got to this point in grade 11 where I went in and, and I had this like really bad mark going into the first semester of physics. This is terrible. And the guidance counselor was like, you know, I don't, I don't think you can study sciences anymore. So that ex- I, I was really upset after that meeting because I felt like I actually really liked sciences. And my dad studied sciences before he got into architecture. And so I was kind of trying to follow in his footsteps a bit. Mm-hmm. And I, I started getting really serious about figuring out how to control my focus and my attention. Even at that age, you were getting serious about it. Well, because I, I had to, I wasn't going to go to university yeah. for sciences and I, I freaked out basically. It was like one of those pivotal moments, you know, it, from going from a kid to like, you know, something that mm. resembles an adult. Kind of like the, the ship is sailing here and you got to, yeah. you got to step up, right? Yeah, exactly. It was kind of like everybody was, I, and then I, and then I opened my eyes and everyone suddenly was gone. I was alone. And I was like, whoa. Mm. So how did you manage to, uh, controlling attention? What were some of the first things you did? I didn't know that I was having trouble. It was kind of more basic than that. I didn't know that I was having trouble controlling my attention at that time. I only connected it looking backwards. What I did was I started studying like crazy. Like I just started, I started just being like, okay, like if everyone else, so let's say you can control your attention, right? You sit down at your desk, you know what you have to do. You have a well-defined task. You just do it. Well, if you, if you have trouble controlling your attention, you might need twice as much time because your mind is meandering constantly and you're bringing it back. And if you've ever tried to meditate, it's exactly like that, but imagine it was happening all the time. You know, like, so your, your mind is, you're trying to quiet your mind, your mind's just going all over the place. So what I did was I just realized, like, okay, I'm going to have to try twice as harder as everybody else. I'm going to have to spend four hours instead of two hours doing this math assignment. And that kind of worked. And then I also learned about spaced repetition. Spaced repetition had a big impact at that time and then throughout my life. And I learned that from a great physics teacher I had. Spaced repetition is the, it's a principle that, the, the memory, however it works, if you repeat something to the human memory, it remembers it after a certain number of repetitions. And that's why cramming works. But the length in between those sessions matters. And mm-hmm. if you can vary the length and you can extend the length as you go out, so as the number of repetitions increases, so does the length in between the repetitions, it commits it from short-term memory to long-term memory. And long-term memory is the type of thing that like you're never going to forget, like your phone number, because yeah. the amount of times you've repeated it 
And the space in between those repetitions has not only gotten bigger, but also more random. It seems that the brain actually cares about both the length in between the repetitions as well as the uh, sort of like the randomness of it. Like it's, if, it, if it's sporadic, the, the brain wants to remember it more than if it's regular. That's interesting. It's kind of like it, since it can't predict when it needs a recall, it has to store it in a, a certain type of memory. Yeah, exactly. Okay. You have a very similar mind to me. So if you think about like <laughs> the software development perspective, it's like, oh, yeah. wow, quite a resilient machine. Like it improves. It's like this notion of like anti-fragile. It improves from the chaos rather than like crumbles under it. So anyway, I got, I got really into that index cards, memorization. I had to learn all of that. And that helped me a lot later on. So what'd you end up going to school for? Geology. I studied earth sciences. I basically, I was in health sciences, like life sciences for the first year. I was not enjoying it. I was doing fine, but I was not enjoying it at all. And at that time I realized I should probably find something that I do enjoy. I thought I needed to switch to engineering because my, my closest friends were also at the school that I was at and they were in engineering and they loved it. When I was in high school, I thought, oh, maybe I should do engineering, but I did life sciences instead. And I shouldn't have. Because I went to the engineering department, they said, sure, you can transfer, but you're going to have to retake your, your year because you don't have any of the prerequisites for the. I'm not an academic person. I knew I was never going to be an academic mm-hmm. person. And the thought of doing another year of university, just I couldn't do it. So I said, well, what's the closest thing? And they said, well, there's this earth sciences program, which is a split program in engineering and science. So you're going to be in classes with engineers. You're going to be able to take some engineering electives if you want to. And then you're going to be in all sciences. And by the way, there's some field trips where you're going to be able to go in the field and look at some trees and some rocks and map some stuff. And I thought, I like being outside. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> that And this is like now looking like part of me is really upset that that's the, that's how superficial the decision to study at a post-secondary school was. And that's how lucky and privileged I was, right? Like it was expected that I was going to go to university. I had to study something. I wanted to have a bachelor's of science coming out of that experience. That's all. That was really the criteria. And now looking back, like I hope with my kids, I'm going to be able to have a much more thoughtful process with them to figure out what are they passionate about. And the answer is, I don't know, maybe going to university, you know, taking a year off in between is not such a bad idea. So, okay. So then post-graduation, take me through kind of everything from there up to uh, founding Volley. So after earth sciences, I graduated and had a bachelor's of science and I started applying for jobs in earth sciences or, you know, geological sciences, geological engineering. And I had a job at an oil and gas, basically like a, a water testing company that works for oil and gas companies. And then I had this offer through a, a friend of, of my dad's to go out to Sydney and do some consulting work for the mining division of a small management consultancy. Like a kind of like a McKinsey, but smaller and more boutique. So I thought, well, all right, it was a trial program. So they take students from out of school and they give them three months to kind of prove themselves. And then whoever you know can stay, stays and whoever can't, can't. I went there and I did that and, and it was fantastic. I loved it. I had such a fantastic experience in Sydney. I met my wife there, which was amazing. So that's how I got into the professional world. And then when I was there, there was this group of people who were coding all day. And I saw them, they were across like, you know, they were literally like we were in cubicles and they were like across the hall, cubicle, the cubicle hall. You know, I don't know what you call that, but you know, in the matrix where Neo's like, you know, going between cubicle, it was like that. (laughs) (laughs) There was a guy who was in one of the desks in that little area. 
you know, I passed the three month test and I was, I'd been given a visa to stay for indefinitely as long as I was working there. So I, I thought, okay, I've kind of maybe I've earned enough to kind of try and move teams because I was alone at that time. And the mining sector in Sydney, by the way, at that time, I got there and they were like, yeah, the, all the work dried up. So, you know, there really wasn't a lot for me to do to begin with in mining. So I ended up basically moving teams, moving into that team. And I, I did that by just taking the desk of someone who left that team. I just moved my stuff there one morning and I just introduced myself to the team and they said, okay. And they taught me a lot about how to write Java because that's what we did. We, we wrote these Java simulations of rail networks. Basically, they built timetables. This is kind of weird. You just They're moved weird. over to the programming team with no knowledge of it and they took you in? I said, I think I probably said to them, like, you know, I, I can do some stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I can do some stuff. Because what I didn't tell you was that in throughout my childhood and throughout university, I was making websites. And uh, oh, that's huge. Out. Okay. So we didn't okay. get into that. I'm sorry, I forgot to say that. But basically, that love of taking things apart and putting them back together translated into coding at a very early age as well. The first programming language I used was called Turing, uh, which named after Alan Turing. But if you look it up, it was like an old, I think it actually was a U of T project. I think it came out of University of Toronto. And it was a very simple language. And I used to make like text-based adventure games for myself. So sad. I didn't even have any friends to show it to, like just for myself. <laughs> There's nothing worse than making a text adventure game for yourself because you know, <laughs> you know the how the three is already going to go. I don't know why I was doing that. <laughs> but anyway, that's what I was doing. Our computer, we had like a Mac. We had a bunch of different computers, but we had a, a Mac um, SE. That's a cool story because I ended up taking that apart. And inside of the case of that computer is the signatures of all the Macintosh team. Like it's engraved Whoa. into the case. That's cool. And that really blew my mind because I was a little kid and I was like, wow, like people actually made this computer, like people who cared enough about it to sign the inside of it. That really blew my mind. I, I started making websites, Dreamweaver, Photoshop, all that stuff throughout high school. And I was making band posters and like doing lots of creative stuff on the computer. And that all translated eventually into a love for making software. I knew I saw what these people were doing at this consultancy and I knew I wanted to do that. I knew I wanted to spend more time coding and less time doing other stuff. So I went to them and I said, look, I have some experience with web technologies. Really, that's a lie. Like I didn't, I never did any production work ever. Like I just launched my own websites and stuff like that. They gave me a chance. I don't know why. I mean, I think they were probably just like, this guy's crazy. Like <laughs> who wants to deal He's with it? trapped him? here on a visa. <laughs> We got we to yeah, put in the work. Exactly. <laughs> they didn't know what to do with me. They were just like, okay, whatever. But there was this guy, I should mention his name uh, in case anyone sees this. His, his name was Armin and he was um, for my very first programming mentor. He really helped me understand how to write much better code and, and how to make it work. And then I were really down the rabbit hole because I didn't have any friends in Australia and I was on a totally different time zone than EST. So nothing else to do but to learn and to practice and to code. So I started making apps and I had a, my very best friend was doing the same thing in Toronto. So we were sharing our work back and forth. We were learning PHP and Objective-C and JavaScript. And then the company said, does anybody know how to make an iPad app? And I just said, yeah. And I, and I hadn't realized what I had done because I had no experience <laughs> building any iPad apps. But they wanted a, um, an app that all the principals of the company could take around on their iPad to tell what sectors they were generating revenue from. So it was like a graph analytics app, like basically for the principals to understand where the revenue was coming from. And I built that with web 
technologies. I built it with JavaScript because at that time you could do it with Objective-C, but it was still in the early days and side loading web applications through the home screen, like, you know, save as home screen. Yeah. That was still something that worked pretty well. And so mm-hmm. they were really happy with it and it worked really well. And I was proud of it. And I collected all these projects with screenshots and I sent them to this agency I found called TN and Lax that were in Toronto. I sent it all to them and I was like, you know, I, I think what you guys, I love their authenticity. The thing that I really liked about TN and Lax was they put out these amazing blog posts about their work that you really got a feel for the people that made what they were doing. And I think that's something that I care a lot about. I cared about it when I saw the signatures on the inside of a Mac. And I cared about it when I saw these beautiful blog posts about the work that they were doing. And they were working with cool customers like, you know, Facebook and Medium and Pin, what is it called? Pinboard? Pinterest? No. Flipboard. 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 Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what's happened to Flipboard, but they were big back then. So anyway, I sent it all to them. I said, can I have a job? They were like, no. (laughs) They're just like, (laughs) they said, we'll give you a call. So I was like, oh, okay. So I got to meet the developers on Jeff Tian's team and they gave me some feedback on my projects. We did kind of a UX review. And that was the first time I'd ever had anybody look at my work and give me feedback. Fast forward, like I think a few months, I think it'd been like six months and I was so burnt out from being an engineering consultant and I missed my family and I missed my friends. And I said, okay, I'm going back to Toronto. And I, I didn't know what was gonna happen. I, I remember that friend I mentioned who was also coding and learning stuff. It, yeah. You know, him and I were kind of like, look, we'll just find work together. We'll we'll keep each other fed kind of thing. And I'm not kidding. The day after I got back to Toronto, Jeff Tian emailed me and said, can you join the team? Did he have a knowledge that you were even coming back? No, none. I had oh, an wow. email. I, That's crazy. I had no idea. It was incredibly coincidental. And so I said, yes. And that was the start of my career at Tian and Lux mm-hmm. because that's where I actually learned how to build products. When you say that's where you actually learn how to build products... What did that experience give you on top of, you know, your technical and design capability? Because you literally had shipped apps. What was the incremental thing that you learned there? I mean, it's like one of those experiences where everything you knew was garbage. Like you just realized mm-hmm. that like all my code was like spaghetti mess code, you know, like one function that does everything, you know, kind yeah. of thing, like just, just really bad. So I had this amazing mentor named Chris Irwin. And he sat next to me at Tina Lax and I was the junior developer on a team of like six people. And I just asked him like every question under the sun and he just, every day I was learning so much with him. So that was on development, but then we got these design reviews, like UX reviews with the clients. And I was sitting in on those too. So I was seeing how Jeff, you know, conducted himself with clients and how he shared his vision with clients and with our team about what we were building and how important that was. And I saw the importance of having standards, having really strict standards on what a good user experience was, like both from a, a, a design experience, a design perspective, as well as from like a UI development perspective. So like, mm-hmm. you know, if you press a button, like how quickly does it respond? Is it 150 milliseconds? If it's greater, it doesn't chip. That was in, like a profound experience for me. And that's what I think really delineates like professional product developers from, you know, like a hacker or like a a bedroom developer or something like it was uh mm-hmm. it was a it was a really cool experience and I'm, I'm grateful for that and i was on that team for about a year so. and what happened next you know i i, I joined uh, according to people who who were on the team i joined tn and lax at an interesting time people who had been there for a long time like the company was struggling a little bit with their own scale and i didn't really pick up on this until i reflected on it later on in life but 
it's really hard to grow agencies. And I think anyone who has an agency will tell you that it's just hard for a number of different reasons, hard economically, the risks of the business really don't change. Like you don't know where your next jobs are going to come from. Uh, it's not like a SaaS revenue business where like mm -hmm. you have a growing base. You don't really have that. You, you know, you might have some float that you keep in the company, which helps you safeguard the next two months, but the more employees you hire, the more scary that becomes. So I think that, that, that really, they really struggle with that. And I could start to feel that. So I'm just setting the stage there because it was still really hard for me to leave Tien and Lax. Like I just loved it there and I was mm. really loved it. But I met Mike, my co-founder through my best friend, Matt. Mike went to U of T with someone that we went to school with and, and we all met over dinner one night and I hit it off with Mike and it's hard not to hit it off with Mike, you know, Mike. So, <laughs> you know, like it, I don't know if there's many people who have said like, oh, I really didn't like that guy. <laughs> like Most people really <laughs> like him. Yeah. But the thing that most people really maybe don't know is that Mike's charisma is authentic. Like it's his heart, his soul shines through when you meet him. I was enamored with it. And we, so we got along super well, we hit it off and he was working on this crazy idea he had. He was like, I'm constantly connecting people. I want to be able to do it through some software. Like, how do we do that? That grew up into our first startup called Volley. And so I left Tien and Lax. So did you guys just start bootstrapping or did you raise money, join an accelerator? Like uh, how did it start in earnest? We started just working on it at night and on weekends. He'd come over to, to, to where I was living and like we would just, you know, work on it at, at my desk. He'd hacked it together with like whatever the equivalent of like no code solutions was at that time. This is like 2013. He had, he'd hacked something together and I, I said, okay, let me, let me take this and I'll turn it into an actual product. After about a few weeks of that, he sat me down we had coffee and he said like, I want you to co-found this business with me. I want to be 50, 50 partners with you. Like, let's do this. Let's actually like really run at this. And at the time he was also doing his, he was doing like a consultancy thing. He was working as a consultant with um, some friends of his. The way we did it, was to pay ourselves, we went to the DMZ, the Ryerson, it sounded like the de demilitarized zone, but it was the <laughs> Ryerson. Um, Depends who you ask, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, sometimes it felt like that, that's for sure. Yeah, It was called the the digital media zone, I think. I don't yeah, know. that was Anyway, yeah. it was kind of like a place where half the people there, they were like, you could rent a desk, half the people there were, students at Ryerson's, they had like an entrepreneurship, digital entrepreneurship program or something like that. So there was like student projects. And then the other half were like people like Mike and I were like trying to make a go of it, like actually like trying to make mm -hmm. this their career. And like they had, they had, there was no backup, you know, like you were on your own. And there was a few teams there as well who we became really close with who are now amazing. Like Matt is, is the close friend I mentioned. He was there and, and Rob Lay was there with Tiny Hearts. Like he was working out of, uh, so there was some like, Pretty cool. It was like a cool moment. I don't know if there's like a whole other generation after me that's like just as cool, but like it felt like <laughs> we, we were had really to assume in... there was. Yeah. For those that don't know, Tiny Hearts for uh, Rob Lejama is uh, the founder of it, and uh, they got acquired by Shopify, I think, 2016 or 17. Uh, so uh, he, yeah. he still works at the company. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they built Shop. I mean, it's an amazing app. Like, it's a huge yeah. part of, I, would, I think it's a huge part of Shopify's strategy yeah, right definitely. now, too great team, like an amazing team. And I'm still really close with a lot of them. And then my other friend, Tyler's company is Inkbox. I don't know if you've heard of them. Oh yeah. Yeah. They're huge. I mean, massive growing uh, consumer temporary tattoo company. They kind of like threw the whole temporary tattoo thing on its head. All these companies were starting and, and we were all kind of hacking it all together ourselves. To, and it was an amazing environment to be in. And we paid ourselves 
through RFI, which was the Ryerson Future Investment something or other. And it was uh, uh, Matt and Al, Al Lisney and Matt Saunders, uh, who gave us our first check. And I think it was around $30,000. And I have a picture of Mike, who was like so thrilled. And then what was cool was Ontario Centers of Excellence would match it. So they RFI had like a thing with them. So we got, I think, 60. And and are they taking equity in the company? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I don't know how much it was, but (laughs) yeah. Wow, I can't imagine cutting 30k and <laughs> yeah. getting any anything like a percentage point or something. I don't even know what it is either, but I assume it's something. Yeah. Yeah, it was oh, definitely sure. more than that. Yeah. It's kind of like if you look at Y Combinator's model, it's similar. Like yeah. they your Y Combinator yeah, it used to be eight thousand dollars and seven percent or something. Or no, maybe yeah. it was like fifteen thousand back in the day or something like that. But yeah, so and now the, the amount has gone up, like it's 120, I think, now and seven percent, but like seven percent is lot like That's it's a, a lot. it's yeah. so much equity for $120,000 and now I'm like oh man like but <laughs> but at that time we had nothing like zero no and I wasn't going to ask my parents for help neither was Mike and they would have my parents are amazing they're super supportive they're incredible people we didn't want to do that we wanted to make it yeah. properly so we did that and that's how we paid ourselves for a while and then we met Boris and Angela at version 1 I mean, I just wrote them an email actually up to the Series C saying this, but they were, they changed our lives for sure. Describe what Volley, like describe the product that you ended up building and sort of take me through the triumphs and struggles of that product, maybe up until, you know, the big pivot we all know of now. But uh, yeah, sh- share that, share that story. So Volley was a place where designers and developers and founders and artists could all ask questions that can only be answered by the experience of another person, not things that you could easily find when you Google. Think about the kind of stuff that you read and learn from Medium articles, for example, like someone sharing their full experience, but in a short form answer, more like Stack Overflow. And we really didn't see a lot of things that covered that niche. There's tons of question and answer products. The closest thing I think at the time that was scraping at that was like, and still does, is Facebook groups. But but Facebook groups is, are notoriously kind of private. They're you know They're not really indexed by Google, I don't think. They might be, but I'm not sure. We were trying to build that. We were trying to build a place where people could, and the way we measured the success of users on Volley was by how helpful they were. You would gain points by other people saying like, this answer was helpful. Kind of like Stack mm-hmm. Overflow, where you mark something as, with a green check yeah. mark. It's like that. Quora, I think, uses similar mechanics for some. Quora was definitely like, when we talked to investors about the product, they always said, well, what about Quora? You know, I'm not actually sure we had good answers for that question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe Mike might be mad at me for saying that, but I, I don't know if we did. It was a it was a very competitive landscape. Look, at that yeah. time, 2013, 2014, like social was booming. Like everybody was trying to build social at that time. Like it felt like every month there was a new product. Like Jelly was like this big thing around then that Biz Stone, the ex-co-founder of Twitter, was creating. Facebook had this like labs team. That was like churning out rooms, I think they called it, was like another product where like it was kind of like groups, but it was way more social and it was on mobile. And then paper, like Facebook paper came out, which was like Mike Mattis's product. 
was a cool time for social. And so at that time, version one was like, hey, like who knows where the next social thing is going to come from? There's enormous value in those network effects once it hits a critical mass. And the business model of a social network actually like making money, like Facebook, has been proven. I mean, this is also the time, this is also, I think, when Google Wave went to public launch. Like, yeah, this yeah. Is when Google is going at social. So it's like, it is the peak for sure. Yeah, yeah. Google Wave is around that time. Yep. Maybe Google Wave was actually like, I think even before. Like, I remember beta testing that in university. Like, yeah, I think they the beta. Way- uh, I just did a quick Google. Like the beta was like it was like three years, four years yeah. before yeah. it went. Well, that's classic was, Google. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we were trying to figure out social. We were trying to build a social product, but we were trying to build one that fit with our values. I guess like we wanted it to be really valuable. We wanted it to to be a helpful place, and some of the things that we wanted really didn't like fit with. I think the the scale that you need to operate at to have a successful social product. So we really, we grew the, grew to about 10,000 people, I think. We got to a place where like, we weren't growing as quickly as we were before. And the retention was average, I would say. So growth was like average, retention was average, and we needed to be above average. And Mike and I kind of had a heart to heart about it. And I remember we both kind of shook our heads and said, this is probably not gonna work out. And if it does, the best case outcome was that we were an advertising company. And that didn't really fit with who we were. Like we were people who cared a lot that each individual person that uses what we make, what our company makes, works really well for them. And with social advertising products, people aren't giving you their money in exchange for that value. And there's always this funny equation you're balancing between like, you know, kind of abusing their trust with ads and violating their privacy and then providing value in exchange for that. But it's all very like hidden and surreptitious and it didn't, it doesn't fit with who we were. What was the status of the business at that time in terms of like how much runway did you have left? Oh, I think we had about nine months of runway left. So that's actually, I should mention that. That's probably, I forgot about that, but that's probably part of the reason why we had that conversation too. But I think we were probably like, look, are we going to raise more money? Are we going to have to do a bridge round? Bridge rounds are, you know, kind of awkward. And so we had a team of, I want to say five people, which at the time was the biggest team I'd ever had. And and so that was awful. That whole experience of having to tell those yeah. people that we weren't working on this thing that they all signed up for and put their heart and soul into and put everything they had into. And they really did. We had an incredibly talented team. Mike had, I think, done that before and I hadn't. And I didn't realize how emotionally difficult that was going to be. It totally. was hard. That's some yeah. of the hardest stuff. Harder for them. But but yeah, yeah like let's be course. real. It was harder for them, but still difficult. Yeah. So when you made that decision and you told the team, wait, had you already figured out what you're going to pivot into or take me through the transition? Like what? Oh, okay. So, so you just decided to end it. Yeah. We said we were like the best case scenario is this is going to be an advertising company. It does not fit with our values. And we should have thought about that before. Like the, the whole volley thing for me personally was the learning there was you cannot start with a solution or like a vision or an idea that you have and then try to build backwards from that. It doesn't work. And Steve Jobs famously said this, I think in some interview, he's like, you know, you can't, it was about technology, but it was like, Mm -hmm. you can't start with technology and then build something that's valuable. The technology has to enable that. And hopefully we get into that in this interview because that's something that Ada, I think embodies really well with AI. That was my big learning, even though I'd probably heard that quote. We did. We started with a vision. We tried to force it on a market. That doesn't work. 
And so that was the big moment. I think it was always going to accumulate at some point and it yeah. did. Yeah. Okay. So you guys shut down and yeah. you know, there's a bunch of paths entrepreneurs take at that point. You had some money you can give it back to the investors. We, we tried to do that. Yeah. We, we with, with Boris and Angela, we tried yeah. with at version one ventures. Yeah. We tried to, and they said, they said no. And I, I wonder, <laughs> tell me about that. Yeah. Like, was what, what, like, they said no. And what, like, I keep going is what they told said. Me that. Or... Like he, so I don't, I wasn't in the call. Mike went and I was like probably winding down the product or like trying to figure out how to email all the users and like, you know, get people their data, whatever. Yeah. He went and had a call with them and we had agreed, we were going to say, okay, we're shutting down and we want to give you the remaining funds back, which is about nine months of runway, or I don't know how yeah. much the money was, but like low hundreds of thousands. And they said, no, we're like, find something else. Like we invested wow. in you guys. Boris and Angela, what, what a response. That right? response, that response created a unicorn. That's insane. I don't know. I don't know if I'll say that, but I, it was an incredible vote of confidence. Yeah. I have like, and now I understand a little bit more about the economics of that kind of conviction and confidence, because really at that stage, pre-market fit, as you know, you're investing in the founders, you're investing in the founders you know, I guess, presuming their ability to persevere through these types of events. But I didn't know that. I didn't know anything about investing at that time, really almost nothing. Mike knew a bit more than me, but I'm not sure either of us expected them to say that. Mm-hmm. I was floored. So at that moment, I really, I was like, okay, I'm going to make this. And I think Mike had this, I think we, we didn't really say it, but I think both of us felt like we're going to make this work. Like we're going to actually prove that they made a good decision and a good choice. Wow. And we would kind of went back to back for three months and just furiously trying to figure out what the hell this next product was going to be. And all we said was that it's going to, we wanted to make revenue. That's yeah, <laughs> for obvious reasons, right? Like we yeah. were run out of money. And you wanted to charge for the product, no indirect stuff through advertising, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. And throughout building Volley, you know, I was always getting user feedback, constantly talking to customers, which was great. And, but a lot of the time, I don't know if you've had this experience but when you're building a free product, people will say, oh, if you just had this one more thing, yeah, they're not actually paying you for it. So you build that one more thing and they're not there. They're still not there. Yeah. You go, what is going on? So I really didn't want to have that experience again. I, that drove me crazy. So that was what we agreed. We wanted it to be a SaaS business to business product that made revenue. And that was the only constraint we had. Again, we had been scarred by Volley where we came in with a strong vision and we imposed it on a market. We said, we're doing the opposite. And I think this was informed a little bit by our interviews with YC, which always didn't go well. And I think we, we tried to, like, we probably reread or read all of Paul Graham's essays. You know, we're kind of just like, what are we going to, like, we really, what are we going to do? And it was all about, like, talking to customers and making something that they want. Okay, let's go talk to customers. So we talked to people that we'd met through those angel checks that we got during Bali. We talked with Tarun, who worked at, um, Wattpad, I, I don't know if he still does, but he was there. And I remember having a great coffee with him where he said, you know, like customer support is a huge opportunity because it's, it's a nightmare to scale. We can't figure out how to scale it. And I thought, oh, we had Mike and I both like, well, we had that experience too at Volley. We, we had so many support tickets and we were a free product. Like, you know, it was like really crazy. We were spending like 10, five, $10, you know, every time we had to answer one of those things. And Mike was talking with other people. I talked with Wellsimple and 500 Pixels and he talked with a bunch of other customers. And anyway, both of us got that signal that customer support was something in customer support. Like it was a garbage Mm -hmm. fire at every company we talked to, no matter the scale, no matter 
if it was a software company, not a software company, that gave us the, I would say the problem space. Wow. And we did that all. And we had, we, we had a whiteboard and our office is a generous term for what this was. It was like a, it was some guy's apartment. <laughs> like when we, when we took it over, <laughs> when we took it over, it was like a live work, like loft space, like on Lakeshore. And it was like super cheap and that's why we got it. But it ended up being cool because at that time I was learning how to run with Mike because he's a runner and he taught me everything that I know about running. So when we would get like fried from coding and like thinking about problems and how to make a company and blah, 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 we'd go for a run and we'd come back and then we'd keep working. And that was one of the ways that we maintained our, our, our focus and our ability to actually like work longer days because we wrote, we had a whiteboard in this office and we wrote the number of days we had left of cash. It was like 92 or 93. I have a picture of it. One whiteboard said that and every day I crossed it off and reduced it. And then the other whiteboard had names of customers that we were trying to get three month commitments from because those commitments are what you're going to raise on. We were going to need to raise some money at some point to continue working on the product. And totally. if we didn't have those commitments, then we had nothing basically. Wait, how are you even thinking about getting commitments? Like what did you even build? You just said you identified the problem space like, how did you even get from that to whatever the first version of this product data was? Yeah. So we figured out the problem space from talking with companies that experienced the problem. We just went around and talked to companies, like I mentioned, that we'd, we'd met through through Building Volley. Then Mike, one of his amazing superpowers is getting people who have no vested interest at all in our success to come along a journey with us. And so he did that. He was calling, cold calling companies that he had met through friends of friends or whatever. And he was saying, you know, we're going to solve your customer support scale problems. We don't yet know how, but we want to do that. Can you please let us in as support agents in your ticketing platform, whatever you use? Most people use Zendesk at that time. And they would say yes. And I was like, how are you doing this? Like, it doesn't make sense. Like, <laughs> they're not... Like there was no money. There was like, it was like, we're not paying them. Like they would just say, yeah, sure. Whatever. Like we would basically just say, we'll be support agents. And you know, the, the commitment is that we'll learn as much as we can about how to solve this problem with you. You know, a lot of people I'm sure said, no, I don't know about those emails because they're in his, his inbox, but a lot of people said yes. And so some of those first customers were like care guide, for example, to the Canadian company. They were one of those people that let us in. We would create a Slack channel and some stakeholder from CareGuide, like usually the head of support, uh, customer service, would be in that Slack channel with us. And then we would have Zendesk credentials and we would be going through. And so I was building scripts to pull in all this historical ticketing history and try to understand how we can automate some of it, how we can provide some value to agents who are sitting there doing the same thing every day. Being a support agent at that time was literally answering the same questions for software products, especially every day. And those questions were usually, how do I change my password? And it was like, here are the three steps. And they had templates mm -hmm. and they would copy and paste the template in. And it's crazy. Can you imagine like a human being, like imagine if your desk was like a button that said copy and a button that said paste. And they were like, that's what it was, right? It doesn't look like that because it's a person at their desk and like they're using software or whatever, but that may as well be what it looked like. And to me, that looked like software should be doing this for you. You shouldn't be doing this. There are things that human beings are are meant to be doing. And the, the type of valuable interaction you can create is definitely not through templates. Like we just thought templates need to die. That's all we knew. So we built a thing that used some very crude machine learning to choose a template 
from their existing templates that the agents had already created. And it would suggest to an agent through Slack, a support agent, would you like to reply with this thing? And that's a whole category of software now. And at, I don't know if it was then, I'm sure someone was working on it then, but we didn't, to our knowledge, there wasn't, there was only one company, I think around that time that just got started called Digital Genius. And that's still what they do. I want to, I want to pause for one second. Cause sure, you know, you yeah. said the, you said the magic word machine learning. I, I see a lot of startups and pitch decks and like AI machine learning is in every single one, even if it has no business being in that product or if it's literally not being used well, like, yeah. can you describe why this type of problem is conducive to using machine learning? Like I said, just to, just to preface the answer, like that technology in search of a problem is a, a very common um, challenge in, in software and product development. And I'm sure you've seen it a million times in your career. I've seen it lots of times too. It's very tempting to take a, a demo from some new technology and say like, wow, what, like retrofit this to some, some problem that a customer might have, or maybe will have, or will have in the future. And what we were doing was we were starting with a problem that customers had, and we were trying to find a solution. I didn't even know what AI was. Like I had no machine learning background at all, none. But, but what was happening at that time was that NLTK was open source software and I knew Python. And so I, I had happened to learn Python because at Team and Lax, that's what a developer there used that I, I really respected named, named Brendan. And I learned Python because of him. And so all these open source machine learning tools were suddenly available to Python developers. I'm sure maybe, maybe it was new to me. Maybe it wasn't new. But so anyway, why does it work with Ada? Ada works because we're solving a problem, like I said, that if you were to visualize what someone's doing, their pattern recognizing from strings, they're copying and pasting the same thing in every single time. Maybe they're changing one thing. Like if it says name, they might be replacing with the customer's name. And then they're sending it. That's a perfect problem for machine learning because it's not a problem that requires you to be 100% accurate. You don't need to be perfect at that to provide a lot of value to a customer. You just need to know when you don't know. Hmm. That's a key lesson that we learned was that a lot of people told us you're not going to be able to do this because you're not going to be able to get it to be as good as a person. And what we realized was that through experimenting and being naive, and not knowing that we weren't going to be able to do it 100%, we realized that you don't need to do it 100%. You just need to be able to fail gracefully. So when you're talking to a customer, they ask you, like, how do I change my password? Mm -hmm. You just need to know. I know it. I think I know what that is. Here's an answer. But if it doesn't help, you can escalate right away. Now, why is that important? Because if you're a customer on the other end and there's no agent available, you ask, how do I change my password? Okay, you're in queue now. And there's nothing worse than being on hold for no reason. Why, why isn't the service trying to at least try to partially answer your question or help you answer your own question, help you self-serve before escalating to a person, before asking you to wait? That was the key thing. And every single customer service team we talked to said, that's what we want to be able to do. We didn't know anything about machine learning. We didn't know if we were going to be able to solve this problem. We didn't know if we had to be 100% accurate or 30% accurate. We started by trying to suggest these answers to agents and letting them decide if they want to send that to a customer or not. But then later on, as we did that, the feedback we got was this isn't valuable enough. If you take a team of 10 agents and you can't reduce it by one person, 
you're not reducing the cost of the team. You're only making the agent 10% more efficient. Mm -hmm. That's not valuable enough to a company. That's not what companies are asking for. They're asking to have a as good or better experience for customers, meaning faster, usually at this stage, at this stage of the evolution. Now we measure it in lots of different ways, but at this stage it was faster containment or, or faster resolution. To do that, you have to meaningfully replace the work of an agent. Yeah. It doesn't mean yeah, that I can imagine you I can imagine you in some uh, circumstances or the 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 product making it slower. Because yeah, they, you know, exactly. yeah. humans are smart. So they've already like figured out these patterns and they can copy paste pretty damn fast. So really having fast. to go through <laughs> yeah. this, you know, slack intermediary is actually kind of annoying totally. uh, and could slow things down, right? Yeah, exactly. And so that forced us to find a solution that actually did the work for the agent. A lot of people, when they're looking at automation in general and saying, like, what are all these people going to do for jobs? Well, we weren't. And at that time for, for years, I don't think I don't even know if we've ever replaced a support agent because a lot of the time what happened was the budget just grew to add people on the team who are now content developers and workflow developers in ADA. So I'm not sure. I've never I, I don't know the numbers. But anyway, the point is a lot of people were asking us that question. The feedback we were getting from support agents were, was thank you so much. Like, thank you for allowing me not to answer the same rote, redundant questions all day that I don't need to be answering. Like, so the support teams that we worked with and work with today are, are thrilled to be using a product like yours. remember seeing an early demo actually I, I can't even remember the exact time I think it's probably two, 2016 one of the things I really loved about it was it allowed a non-technical user to train the system yeah so you know what I saw we were seeing a demo basically of like they'd be ingesting lots of different support tickets but then for the ones where the system doesn't have a high confidence that it can respond it actually would put that into a different queue which then uh, subsequently, a marketer, a salesperson, a support agent could actually answer that question to train the system. Yes. I don't know if, the, you know, this is a long time ago, so I don't know where the product's at now, but I remember seeing that. But I think I called over Craig Miller, who I interviewed last and CPO of Shopify and, and was like, wow, this is actually really powerful because, uh, you know, from a, an at scale company's perspective, I don't actually have to create new roadmap <laughs> from yeah, an engineering totally. perspective. Right. Yeah. And that is like the number one blocker to even having your mind open to to using something like this. So the way that you created the human in the loop in Ada system is 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 I think, you know, something that was super compelling to me the first time I saw it. Oh, that's great. I mean, I, that was the kind of feedback we were getting pretty consistently from people who saw the product at that time. And that was the huge difference between Volley and Ada. Was Volley, we were constantly it felt like we were pushing the product on the market, which I said before, and mm -hmm. we weren't getting anywhere, anywhere. It was an uphill battle. It was like pushing that boulder up a hill. And Ada was the opposite. We were like trying to slow the boulder down enough that we could actually <laughs> like work on it. You know, it was just crazy. Like people were pulling this product out of us so quickly. And I was just dying. Like really, honestly, I was, I, my wife can tell you, like I was working all hours of the day. And I know that this is an unpopular thing to say on, in interviews because people are trying to create some work-life balance. And I understand that that's really important. But frankly, when you're a founder and there's two people on it's the team, it, sometimes. it's not possible. It's just not. Yeah, when you have 92 days or whatnot left. No, I took this dumb vacation. I mean, it wasn't <laughs> dumb. 
yeah. it was dumb because of how it worked out. But I was so excited to take this vacation after like a year of building ADA. I went on this road trip with friends to North Carolina. And of course, right away, we onboarded some customer. And like yeah. that was just enough scale that everything fell apart. And I'm like SSHing into our servers on my phone in a car, driving back to our rental so I can get on my laptop. And like, it was just, and I just thought to myself, this is a nightmare. So we definitely grew our engineering team pretty quickly. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, it was an intense, it was an intense first year. of the. the you, you, were, you were talking about this a bit earlier, but you know, with the 92 days left, you had kind of customer commitments on a future version of ADA that would be good enough for them to actually use. And you basically were able to raise on that, raise I, yeah, more subsequent I, funding. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we had commitments from Wellsimple was one of our first customers. I think it was, they were in, if they weren't the first, they were like second or third or something. Hmm. And it was really interesting because at that time we didn't, we had a backend interface, like you said, for training answers and for building the content. We had zero integrations. So if you needed to personalize the content at all, that was impossible. And we had no front end widget. Like we didn't have a chat widget for websites or for mobile apps. And we required you to build your own, which is crazy to me to think wow. about. Like I'm laughing now, but like you had to bring your own UI because we hadn't built that yet. That's how early we were in this whole thing. Like I was just giving advice to a founder yesterday, but basically he was saying, you know, I've got this idea and he was showing me a prototype in Figma. And I said, this is, it's great, wonderful idea. It's way too polished. Like mm -hmm. you, I want to, I want people to know you really don't need to have much if you've figured out the problem. Like if you've got the right problem and you have defined functionally what solving it is, then you'd be shocked what customers are willing to endure if that's a valuable enough problem. So this is basically the feeling of product market fit. Yeah. Like, is it fair to say from that early stage to literally this day, the market has been pulling you towards yes. just scaling and keeping up? 100%. Yeah. I say that with no ounce of like feeling boastful about that or like proud of that or whatever. It's just a matter of fact. We have more requests for product features than we will ever be able to service. Ever. I don't think we're ever going to be ahead of it. And I'm sure Shopify is in the same position. That's amazing. Yeah, I think that's like the contrast of, you know, that type of environment versus pushing the boulder up with Volley. I think that's such a clear, it's such a clear difference and something that I think early stage founders should always reflect on, which is like product market fit should punch you in the face. Yeah, it really, it yeah. does. It really, it's very, it's thrilling for a day and then it's a nightmare. <laughs> like that's basically, it's like, that's what it is. And I, I, at least in my experience, I only have one data point. So for sure, maybe other people are having a different experience of this than me, but that's been my experience. In the subsequent now five years, I guess, since that time, I'm sure there's been many evolutions of that product as we've just been talking about. Could you maybe outline like, and take us all the way to present day in terms of what the capabilities are of Ada today and how maybe the platform functionality and even potential has evolved? Uh, yeah, maybe yeah. like share a couple inflection points along the way of like when, you know, your eyes just started widening or the product just got a step change in power and like, what were those key moments and, and the decisions that led to them? Yeah, for sure. So I, I want to mention first something that a lot of people don't mention, but I really believe that performance and scale, especially for B2B software is a feature. 
And so mm-hmm. that alone, like was, is a constant battle that we're always fighting. And I know Shopify takes that really seriously. I've talked to totally. many past or present senior engineers on your team. And, and that's a feature in itself. Uptime is a feature. Yes. The other thing I'd say is that, like I said, we didn't have any, what we call a channel. We, we needed you to provide your own, whether it was like a Slack webhook API, or if it was a, a Sendbird UI. I don't know if you're familiar with that product. Yeah. Um, or a Twilio SMS. Like we didn't have any of that. So you needed to build middleware when we first launched the product. And I was building it, frankly, with the team. Like I was sitting there with the developer and building some some server that would just relay requests back and forth between their stuff and our stuff. So that was the first thing we knew we needed to build. So we built a web chat UI that was real time using WebSockets. And that was an inflection point right away because everybody wanted to put this on their website. That's where traffic was coming from because they were using Zendesk email ticketing. Zendesk email ticketing came from their website form. And then we realized, well, there's other channels that are emerging. At that time, Facebook Messenger did not have a business thing. It was a page-based, you could set up a messenger integration for a Facebook page, but at that time it wasn't a business feature at all. Now it's huge for Facebook. It's a huge part of their strategy right now, as you know. And Instagram DMs didn't even exist. I don't even know if Instagram, like that just, that wasn't yeah. a thing. <laughs> now that's a whole new, really interesting channel. And I'm sure Shopify is thinking a lot about that because there's mm-hmm. a ton of commerce happening through Instagram. So all these channels, that's a big thing. So we have a huge channels platform um, and a message, a core messaging API. And we're right now, I feel like we're always going to be saying this, but we're, we're right now in the middle of really giving that a lot of love so that that grows up into a developer API that other custom channels can be built on that enterprise customers and solutions consultants, service integrators will want to use. So channels is a whole thing for us, how people yeah. talk to Ada. And then our product vision is not just to be in chat, but perhaps to be on the phone through voice and perhaps to be in other places like VR, maybe one day. I don't know. Those are all channels for us. And we're always exploring where that could be. Hmm. Let's talk about workflow because you you said like, what about how that content's actually created? So one of the things yeah. that we did, which I'm really happy we did was we, we said, okay, the, the user for this product is not going to be a developer. They're going to be a support agent. They're going to be a support agent that we elevate with our product into a new position. And they're basically an automation agent now. And we actually call them that, like in the user model, it says agent. And that person is in ADA building workflows, kind of like Zapier, if you've ever used that, or Siri shortcuts, if you've ever used that, or other workflow builders. There's tons of them now. Like this is the whole low code movement, which I'm so thrilled by it. Honestly, is I think I want to spend my whole career working on low code. Hmm. So the workflow builder... At first, you could create text messages, picture messages, links, and videos. That's it. That's all you could do through Ada. And we quickly we had like a little drawer. We still have it with blocks, and we've quickly grown that. Think of like the palette, the tool palette in Photoshop. Mm-hmm. Like maybe think of Photoshop one, where like I don't know, I've never looked, but like maybe you'll have a paintbrush <laughs> and a pencil. You know, so sure. it was like that. But pretty soon we started filling that palette out, and one of the key inflection points happened when we created a web request block you know with the our team this little like kind of team that i had been working with for a while we were like wow you know because we were so obsessed with like what else can this do we we're like well what if we just and, and for listeners that? just just in case they're not following you're talking about basically the payload back to the end customer like what types of content can you can you actually respond with? exactly in the channel yeah. so imagine like yeah. messaging app on facebook messenger you message, uh, let's say a business that uses Facebook Messenger, 
you say, you know, are you open on Sundays? And instead of a person in that business, like let's say it's a bakery, you know, that's the example that Google uses, that person like they're baking something. They can't like be on their phone like messaging, you know. So they have an automation agent in the middle. They have a, an ADA. And ADA will say, we're not open on Sundays. We're mm. open on Monday at six o'clock or whatever. That's a good example. Well, let's unpack that. So in the early days, you'd have to write that answer and you have to write one for like Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you have to have a different one. And so the machine learning would be trained on like different examples of people asking, are you open on, you know, Sunday? Now what we've done is like, we have all those examples in one and then we pull out, well, what's the day of the week? Oh, the day of the week they're talking about is Wednesday. And then you can make a web request and the web request goes and looks at a scheduling API and the scheduling API tells you what hours they're open. So it went from having seven answers for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, 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 Saturday to mm -hmm. one. That was our, our obsession. Like our, our team's obsession for, I would say a year and a half was that problem. And what we had to create was a visual programming language, essentially. And no one that uses it knows that it's a programming language I, because they're wow. like, you know, they're just content developers. They're content managers sure. in Ada. But they're dragging blocks. They're setting conditionals. They're making requests to APIs. And at the time, we created this web request thing. So it would work with any API. You, you just had to know the URL, the credentials that you needed. And then it would give you a preview of what the response from the API would be. And you could select what we call the variables, the, the things that, that hold the values. And then you could use those in the content later. So you could inject them into a text message and say, we're open at 6 p.m. And what we've now grown up into doing, which you know very well, I know, and I've been, you've been so helpful along the journey in, in all of it you put out on the internet, but also just in our lunches and conversations together, we're building a developer platform, which enables people to create blocks, which are simplified versions of those web requests. So you don't need to be a developer to know how to use them. You don't need to know the URL of the API, the authentication credentials. You just install the block and it's a, let's say, you know, Bob's Bakery block and it knows yeah. the schedule. Or maybe it knows the weather or something like that. Or knows the weather or whatever. Yeah. There's tons of them. We have tons for Shopify, for example, that look up order status or that like issue refunds, depending on whether or not the amount of the order is less than a certain threshold. That's the kind of stuff that we do for our customers. And that's what makes our product so powerful is that you can have this deep personalization that normally is reserved for a human to customer interaction, knowing someone's name, knowing their age, you know, what, what the last product they bought was or whatever. In Telus's case, knowing um, what plans they have enabled or how many people are on their plan. Are you sharing a plan? Mm -hmm. Are you not? You would be shocked by the types of flows that the content builders in Ada are building. They're incredible. They blow me away. Every time I see them, I'm like, you did that with it. I'm like, oh no. Like, but at the same time, it's amazing, you know? And so it's this constant process that our team is always engaging in of trying to simplify, simplify those flows. So the more power we give to these builders, the more they use them. And this is a whole new class of what I would call developer. In fact, one of our investors from Excel, Ben just gave them an interesting name in our board meeting uh, this week. He calls them citizen developers. I don't know if he invented that term or not, but it's brilliant. Hmm. They're using low code or no code tools and they're programming incredibly powerful stuff. And they don't call themselves a programmer. They don't even know that they're doing is programming, but that's what they're doing. That's the leverage of platform, right? That's You're creating an abstraction layer that a hundred X is the talent pool with which can contribute value to that platform. Yeah. And it's off to the races, right?
here's the trend, right? The trend is the product's getting ripped out of us. So we built that. Then every time you do that, it's like a step change in power. Now more of that company wants to use that power. So now we get people from marketing and sales and from internal IT that help desk saying, we want to use this too. We've got tons of requests for stuff that's wrote and we want to, we want to do. And so now we're just trying to figure out well, how do we build a platform that's going to work for that, you know? Yeah. And all these different channels, like how is this going to work with voice? Because voice, the good thing about chat is you have a high degree of specificity. When people put in a postal code, you know, it's usually on their phone, at least it's usually or from your history of typing in to form. So you've got that specificity, but when you're on the phone, you have to describe it. You say, well, it's M for M. I'm not going to get my full postal code, but the point <laughs> is that, that it's a whole different challenge is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So we're yeah. trying to build the platform for the companies that experience this problem in the most painful ways, the people that have millions of customers all around the world in many different languages, in many different channels, we're trying to build the platform for them that requires the least amount of effort to create the most amount of value. Super interesting. Have any like network effects emerged in the sense of, okay, now you have thousands of customers. Is the thousand and first customer that joins ADA, are they able to build off you know, some of the, the, of what the previous thousand customers contributed to the platform or taught the platform? It's a very interesting question. So this is where being in, in the enterprise market can be a challenge because of very important and very real compliance uh, that you have to adhere to. Mm -hmm. And one of the compliance restrictions we have is that obviously people's private information flows through ADA. So we have to redact that constantly. And we've built pretty cool technology to do that really well at scale. Some of it is like automated and using machine learning. And some of it is just UI, you know, like someone saying this is a protected variable and the contents will race after an hour, you know, that kind of thing. And nothing at rest is stored without being encrypted. So that kind of thing makes those network effects, which seem kind of obvious and should be there, that much harder to take advantage of. So we're in the early innings of doing that. I'll give you a couple of our ideas. So one of them is that obviously customers within the same industry get asked the same question quite a lot. For example, anyone that's doing anything in e-commerce, as you guys know, you know, gets the question, where is my order? That is the number one, as far as I'm, I'm pretty sure about this. Like yeah, I checked 100%. a while ago, hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. That's pretty common. And so Shopify is interesting because I guess I don't know if the right term is federated, but like all your shops are on different domains, but they probably all get that same question. And that's why Shopify has built so much stuff around order tracking and how Arrive turned into shop, et cetera. So we want to be able to have a new e-commerce customer get to value twice or three times or 10 times faster by leveraging those network effects from the training that we've already done in different customers. And so we think we're going to be able to do that, but it's going to require some stuff in the middle that we haven't quite figured out how to do yet at mm. scale. Got to like how to like anonymize and, and uh, aggregate that data in a way that's compliant. Yeah. In compliant. Yeah, exactly. Legal yeah. and like making sure that it's, it's actually going to work for every customer. Like that's a whole other problem because you only know from the, you only know how to do something successfully from the data you have. You don't know that it's going to work for the whole market. So we have the benefit right now of not worrying about that problem because every new customer teaches us something. So what scale do you gain confidence that you, you know enough about the problems more generally. And that's a general product abstract problem. That's amazing. It's incredible how much the platform has scaled and, and where it's at now. What, what is something that 
is sort of like something you can see a path to the product evolving to now that you couldn't have seen when you started, like either a market or a technology or a use case that see, it wasn't even fathomable when you started. But now you think that, you know, over some time period, Ada could do this thing. I love that question. Uh, you're a really good interviewer, by the way, because um, I'm having so much fun. Like, honestly, I'm so, I'm so animated Me too. right now. So when we started, it was all about customer support. I told you that because we work with customer support teams. That's all we knew. The big change happened, I would say, a couple of years ago when we went up market. We were kind of mid-market, low market, because that's the type of company we knew really well. Mm -hmm. And we started trying to charge more for our product after we built multilingual, for example, being able to speak different languages automatically, which is hugely valuable and everyone uses. That feature that the team built, they realized that they couldn't really charge much more for it. But then when we started talking with our, we had an MVNO customer, which is a mobile virtual network operator. They're basically a small subsidiary of a larger telco. So they were a small company that was a perfect customer for us, hiding in a bigger company. And they were like, well, we'll pay you a lot more for this as long as it can work for all of our customers. And we started realizing that the people that get the most value out of ADA are the bigger companies, which I mentioned already. So it was all about containment. And what we started, containment meaning deflection or or not, not even deflection, sorry, resolution, automatic, automated resolution. Like, did we answer the person's question? The person has a certain question. So we were doing that more and more at scale. And as we started working with more of these enterprise customers, they taught us that that's only less than half of the real opportunity. So our company was founded in this defensive way. We were, de we were founded for this, this defensive problem, this problem of cost savings. It was all about getting a cost center to zero. So like, think of something that costs your company $1,000 every month. How do you get that closer to 500? And what we realized was that you're never going to get to zero because you're never going to be able to automate every question. There's a long tail of things that people ask and it's impossible. So what we realized was that the way to break through that is to enable commerce through ADA. That has an infinite ceiling, which Shopify knows super well. So being able to do things that contribute to the bottom line of revenue for the people that use ADA, for example, suggesting a product that someone asks about or connecting someone to a sales call or informing someone of a new product that they might be interested in, like marketing stuff. Those types of things create an, a near infinite ceiling for the value that ADA can provide versus constantly being about improving a cost. Yes. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. I don't know. No, it does. If you want me to take that again, I can. Yeah, but it ties into like the capabilities that evolved in the platform. So like, I can't imagine that market being there if you didn't create those webhook blocks. Yeah, right. I couldn't imagine it either. Like, I, I was in this mindset of this is about support. This is about reducing a cost. This is about improving speed, time to resolving someone's inquiry. And that was the equation for me. And those customers taught our team that this equation is not even close to being the larger opportunity. And so now we're just like the, like the common thread that's now being pulled out of us. And we're trying to figure out how to build that for our customers. And a big part of that is going to be a incredible development platform, which our new SVP of product, Jen, has been doing incredible work with our product team in defining. And the work that you've done and the presentations that you've given have definitely inspired us in that way. Amazing. Wow. This, is, uh, this has been really interesting, for sure. I think the whole arc is fascinating. I think 
you know, the last four years of your life, I'm sure have been quite intense. <laughs> uh, and, yeah. And, and I think not unlike, you know, what I observe even today, even at this scale, it's still in Shopify where it's just that list of things to do. It only grows exponentially and there's no end. Well, yeah, exactly. That's why when you asked about the series C, you yeah. know, like we got this great valuation and those things are excellent. Those are great milestones and we're grateful for them, but we have less than a thousand customers. And there's a hell of a lot more than a thousand businesses in the world that need our product. When I look at that, and then I look at what we're actually trying to build towards, which is building a generational company that's hopefully public, publicly owned, like publicly listed, like Shopify is, you know, like we're barely, barely started. We really, and, and we're still less than 10 years into this. You know, the commitment that I made is minimum 10 years. So, you know, I, I, I'm just trying to keep up with it. That's fantastic. Well, I think that's a great place to end, uh, but I'd love to ask you sort of a question I've asked my previous guests, which is if you had to share one principle either, and you can choose either in career or life that you sort of live by, what would it be? It's a hard question, but you know. Wow. Um, I really wish you had told me you were going to ask me that question. <laughs> <laughs> then it wouldn't be good. It wouldn't be good. Then it wouldn't be good. Yeah. Well... I think you you probably get this a lot and I regret that it's sort of a cliche answer, but I think leading from integrity and intention first has always at least allowed me to sleep at night. So I think if you ground what you're doing with the intention of having the highest in integrity and to build trust with your customers, your team, people that use your product, I think it's hard to go wrong. And the failure, the, the failure doesn't sting. I don't know. That's, that's my best, um, mm. my best answer is that I, I think what I guess what I'm trying to say is I've always had this fear that you could succeed and still fail. You could get to this success state that you may have defined when you were young and hungry and like you didn't have any money or whatever. If it was about money or maybe it's about impact on users and people you know, you can get to that and realize you, you compromise a whole bunch of things along the way. And one of the things that I really love about Mike and our team and our investors is that we all have this shared understanding that we're going to get there, but we're not going to compromise integrity along the way. We're always going to do things that don't violate a certain set of values. And if they feel like they're going to, we stop right away and say, this this doesn't feel right. There's something wrong here. We're probably doing the wrong thing. And we do that a lot. We talk about it all the time. So I would say that's my, my principle is integrity first. That's amazing. Well, David, thank you so much for the time. It's been, uh, it's been an you. awesome chat. Yeah, yeah this is really fun. I had such a great time. Thank you for listening to me ramble. Whoever is listening or <laughs> watching this, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Um, but it was, it, was a, it was an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Brandon. Hey everyone, it's Brandon. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with David. In the next episode, I'm going to be bringing Avram Lori, the VP of product from Wealthsimple onto the show. If you want to be notified when it airs, please sign up at my Substack at blackboxofpm.substack.com. See you then.